Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Chris Gibson. Chris is the co-founder and CEO of Salt Lake City-based Recursion. The company was founded in 2013 when Chris was working in the lab of Dean Lee at the University of Utah. Side note, Professor Lee has since moved on to be president of Merck Research Laboratories. The idea at Recursion is to do what Chris calls industrialized drug discovery. It combines some of the common tools of drug discovery, CRISPR, synthetic biology, automated lab tools, high-powered computing, and artificial intelligence machine learning to hopefully churn out more drug candidates faster and with a higher probability of success. The company has a long history of phenotypic screening and leans on that expertise with images combined with the new tools to create maps of biology that are supposed to help scientists predict how any two tested genes or molecules might interact with each other. Recursion raised $436 million in an IPO in April of 2021, which looks pretty well-timed based on the state of the biotech stock market today. It also has a couple of partnerships for the long term, with Bayer and with Roche Genentech. The Bayer deal is focused on treatments for fibrotic diseases, while the Roche Genentech partnership includes oncology and neuroscience indications. Chris is a next-generation founder and industry leader who isn't afraid to buck convention at times and has a lot of interesting things to say about technology, about company building, and about creating a thriving ecosystem outside of the main industry hubs. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsors of The Long Run. Alpenglow Biosciences sheds new light on pharmaceuticals with AI-powered 3D spatial biology. Pathology is an essential component of drug development, yet it is stuck in archaic times by looking through 2D slides. Alpenglow has developed an end-to-end drug development solution with proprietary 3D imaging, cloud processing, and AI analysis to digitize entire 3D tissues, providing 250 times more data and deeper insights. Learn how Alpenglow can illuminate your path to breakthrough results at alpenglowbiosciences.com. And did you know Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms? With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or a bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. Now please join me and Chris Gibson on the long run. Chris Gibson, welcome to the long run. Thanks for having me, Luke. Excited to be here. So Chris, I I have to say just before uh, our call, I read your recent 10K, your letters to the shareholders, and there was one line at the very top that caught my eye. And you said, 
while perhaps uncommon today, I feel that candor is a critical ingredient in achieving our mission. Now, business correspondence of this uh, variety is not really known for candor. <laughs> Why do you say that? You know, Luke, I, I, I think what we're building is going to take decades to, to put in place. And so it's, it's my belief that creating a track record of trust and transparency with the folks who are going to go on that journey with us in the long run, so to speak, no, no pun intended, um, is, is really important. And I would rather have us be upfront and upset some folks in the short term, um, but create the kind of trust, especially as a new management team, uh, with, with transparency. And so th this specifically was written because we actually shared an update on a program that was um, the right decision to make, but not you know, a good one. We, we decided we needed to take more time before we started a clinical trial. And we got a little bit of pushback from some folks that we didn't sort of bury that in, in the 10K. And that line was meant to share that that's not the kind of company we are. We're going to put things up front, good and bad. And we think over time, that'll earn us respect of, of, uh, of the folks that we want to have alongside us on, on this mission. Cause it's a, it's a, going to take a long time to build what we want to build. Well, as a journalist, I'll just say, um, I always appreciate candor as opposed to, you know, the opposite, uh, which you see a lot of um, in, in our line of work. So uh, it's one of the reasons I do this podcast. So welcome to Thanks. the show. Uh, let's just start from the beginning and then we'll walk through some of your strategy with recursion, how it got Great. started and where it is now. Um, so where are you from? I grew up in Portland, Oregon, actually. And uh, what um, what was your home environment like? Like, what did your mom and dad do? So um, my mom was an artist. Uh, she's still an artist today and does amazing tapestry and encaustic work, kind of abstract landscape work. And so I got a lot of creativity, I think, from her. Um, and my dad was actually um, an engineer and business uh, uh, person who brought the two of those things together to build uh, a computer company uh, back in the eighties um, that he built uh, out of his early formative days at Intel uh, into a company called Sequent Computers uh, that went public, I think when I was six or seven years old. So there's some interesting uh, parallels there as my, my oldest son was born just about a year before uh, I started recursion. Interesting. So uh, growing up in Portland, uh, were did you have any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have a younger brother, Riley, who's, um, uh, you know, as young brothers or young siblings do, uh, you know, we messed with each other a lot growing up, but now we're super, super close friends. Uh, and, and he lives actually out in Denver. Okay. Okay. So what kind of schools did you attend there? So um, we ended up going to a school um, called Catlin Gable. Uh, I started there in second grade. Um, it's a pretty, pretty incredible place. Um, it's old school in some ways. So, um, you know, we had a, a history teacher who would, who would grade us, uh, as he said, his name was Dave Corcoran and he grade us on a college curve, uh, because he thought it was good for us. And I agree to learn how to write, um, in it, we had these five paragraph essays, like every few weeks in, in his, in his class. Uh, and it was super rigorous and super hard. Um, but it was an amazing place. There were only about 60 kids in my class. I'm close with many of them still to this day, frankly, closer than a lot of my friends from, from college even. Um, so it was a pretty special place. And I learned a lot about writing um, and communicating there. 
uh, which, you know, science as well, but that was the thing that Callum really did well is I think taught people how to think, um, think creatively, to think uh, logically, and then to communicate well, which hopefully comes across in our podcast today, or it's going to be super awkward. Um, but that's, I ultimately, I think it's been a huge ingredient in BA, being able to become a, a co-founder uh, right out of grad school. Wow, that's interesting. Going all the way back to elementary school. So did this kind of um, uh, educational ethic continue through middle school, high school? Yeah, all the way through. It's just, it was a, um, yeah, pretty rigorous place, but a place filled with a lot of empathy and love and and um, a, a really formative place, I think, for myself and many others who who went there. So when did you first get interested in science or biology? You know, Luke, I was always interested in science and biology. And where I remember there being a big decision point was in sixth grade when we had this big class project in science. And we got to pick the level of difficulty of our final exam. And I picked the hardest level of difficulty and ultimately didn't do super well. They didn't meet my own expectations. And my sixth grade science teacher, Carol Ponganis, could see the devastation. Uh, uh, and, and she actually took me to lunch. And she basically convinced me that um, I could be really good at science, that it mattered that I picked something really hard to try at, and that it was better to fail at trying something hard than to succeed at doing something easy. And it was that lunch that I look back on as a fork in the road where I decided that I was going to dedicate myself to this. Um, and so thanks to, to Pongi or Carol Ponganis um, back in sixth grade, because I think that's what put me on the course, along with many other things, my parents and other influences in life, my own interests. But that was a pretty formative moment for me. Were you an A student up to that point? No, not, not at all. I've actually never been an A student. There's always been kind of one class every year, every semester that I just can't quite get there. Um, and I think that, you know, that that's okay. Right. There's there's a lot of pressure around these days, the 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 4.0 A student. Um, and that was uh, not something that was ever what I did well at. What I could do was do reasonably well in a lot of different things. And so that was a, you know, for me, learning kind of to be a translator across many different areas um, was 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 pretty important. So what was it about biology that captured your interest either then or maybe later? I think the complexity, right? And, and, and biology is just so massively complex and yet there is fundamental truth in it. That's the thing that I, I thought was, was really interesting intellectually. And then it felt important to me in my life to have some kind of impact. And biology felt like a great place to have impact, whether you end up going into medicine or biotech or uh, any number of fields, um, you know, changing somebody's life through their health through biology is, is really meaningful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So where'd you go to college? I went to Rice University in Houston. Uh-huh. And how'd you end up there? Uh, the honest answer, <laughs> uh, it was the, um, the best school uh, in my top 10 or 15 schools um, that I got into. And if I'm totally honest, it was also the school that was closest to my high school girlfriend at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we said you're going to be Serendipity took me show, in good so. places. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what years are we talking about uh, at Rice? So I went to Rice 2001 to 2005. Okay. Okay. So you're in Houston and this is right around the time that the genome project is wrapping up uh, and they've got one of the major sequencing centers there with Baylor. 
Yep. Was that like part of your, I mean, were you hearing about that? Was that like in the, in the realm of your study at that time? Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was doing bioengineering and business. And so we were hearing, we were hearing about that and many other interesting developments at the time. Um, you know, my early path was actually really deeply focused in tissue engineering. Um, and so I was, I was a little bit less focused on kind of the molecular biology, therapeutics, genetics side. Um, but certainly, I mean, the, the Texas medical center, I don't think many people appreciate the behemoth that that place is and how much incredible stuff uh, is happening right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. So, um, how did you end up at university of Utah? So I was in Texas, um, starting, uh, started an MD PhD program down in, in Texas, uh, uh, at one of the UT schools. And my wife actually, um, was, was wanting to do her medical residency in neurology. And she chose to come home to Utah, which is where she's from. And so after a year of flying back and forth, uh, as a, as a, as a couple, um, it was just not a great business model for our marriage. And so, um, you know, we had a conversation and I decided to fly out to the university and interview with the head of the MD PhD program. Um, who's a guy by the name of Dean Lee at the time. Uh, and Dean was an exceptional person. We ended up chatting for a couple of hours. Uh, and essentially he said, if you want to transfer here, I'd love to have you in my lab. And that's how I ended up in a molecular biology and genetics lab in Utah, which is something I never thought would happen in my life. Twist of fate. Dean is now the president of Merck Research Labs. That's right. Um, president of Merck Research Labs, my co-founder, uh, incredible teacher and mentor to me as well. So you go to Utah. What did you discover there about the place and what you wanted to do? So I think I was a little bit naive to the to the level of genetics that was happening here in Utah. I think like many stories in the world, it was a little bit uh, untold, uh, at least outside of Utah. And so I was I was pretty amazed right away. You know, I sat next to Kirk Thomas in the lab, who was the first author on the paper that won Mario Capecchi uh, the Nobel Prize. Mario was right upstairs, and so I kind of got vaulted in this into this pretty extraordinary. Um, kind of genetics-focused um, uh, curriculum, um, and in a lab that was really, really strong. And I, uh, I started learning through Dean and through others in his lab, again, that power of translation across different um, backgrounds and different perspectives. So, you know, you had geneticists next to molecular biologists, cell biologists, physicians, all in this one lab. And then I came in as the bioengineer, which was yet another kind of language and, and perspective. Uh, and Dean and that lab made it work. It was, uh, it was a really, really exciting place. It was an intense place. Uh, and I loved it. It was, it was five of the best years of my life. Now, a lot of people don't may not realize, like you said, but Utah does have that strong tradition of genetics and molecular biology. Mario Kopecki won the Nobel Prize for the development of the knockout mouse. Um, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but I, I did some reading on my book on Lee Hood and found out that in passing that Mario Kopecki, you know, was at Harvard and like ended up being drawn to Utah because it wasn't so... Um, suffocating or, or in some ways that Harvard can be. It was like a wide open place where he could just hang out a shingle in his own lab and pursue his own thing without a whole lot of people getting in the way or bothering him. And it was like this great creative place 
where he could he could do his thing. That's right. Actually, I've heard Kirk talk a lot about their time together. They used to run for like a couple hours every day. The two of them, I don't know, they did like 100 miles a week of running and then talk about their work together and other people in the lab would join. And there's still a deep tradition of climbing mountains behind the university at, during the lunch break. Um, and one of the things that was extraordinary is that Kirk said that the lack of being in an echo chamber that you might have had on the coasts was actually a really important ingredient in some of the success that they ended up having because they didn't feel as constrained by what at the time was a perspective that what they were trying to do was probably undoable. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you said you spent five great years there. Uh, you, you work on your PhD, uh, Dean's your advisor. What happened late in the game in graduate school that what'd you notice that got the gears turning and got you thinking about starting a company? Yeah. So we were working on a specific rare genetic disease called cerebral cavernous malformation. Uh, and we shared just a few weeks ago to foreshadow a bit that recursion just launched the first ever phase two trial on that disease uh, with actually a molecule that was discovered back during that, that PhD. And the original discovery came out of failure. We had used a traditional approach to try and understand the pathophysiology of this particular rare genetic disease. Um, that, that method ended up failing us. Um, after many years of, of work, not just my own, but, but other people in the lab for, for years before I arrived. Uh, and it led us to what it felt like at the time was a dead end. And in that failure, um, we noticed something, as, as you mentioned, about um, images of human cells. We noticed that when you model this disease in human cells, they look really, really different. And as an engineer, we thought about doing a phenotypic screen. And as an engineer, um, one of the things that I brought to that discussion was the desire to kind of move some of the bias out of the screen and to quantify a lot of things. So rather than just say, it's our hypothesis that activation of ROA is the driver of this disease, can we measure actin stress fibers and then find a phenotypic marker for the reduction of actin stress fibers? Uh, I said, why don't we measure lots of things? Why don't we use maybe even computer vision or other kinds of software techniques to, to measure things in a really unbiased way? And so I got to coding and three days later I gave up because it turns out I'm not a great coder, but I found the work of a woman named Ann Carpenter at the Broad who has built or had built something called Cell Profiler, which is essentially software that allows biologists to do phenotypic screens. And in fact, to use machine learning uh, and, and now neural networks to actually do that, that kind of work. And so we used that system. We did a phenotypic screen of a few thousand bioactive compounds and identified a few totally unexpected compounds that looked like they were having a really interesting effect in the context of a cellular model of this disease. And one of those is now the, the drug that we put in, you know, well, I don't know, they're randomized, but theoretically one of the early patients in our clinical trial may be on that drug now uh, that we kicked off just, just a few weeks ago. And it was that moment when after failure using a traditional approach, we could move to an unbiased kind of machine learning enabled vision approach, looking at cell morphology as a new kind of omics that the gears started turning, Luke, to maybe build something around that. But now, uh, so you're a graduate student at this time, you got a bright idea. Uh, what was the uh, the naysayers? What did they have to say? Uh, did they say, well, you know, it sounds good, Chris, but, you know, phenotypic screens haven't really worked in industry. Yeah. Um, 
what most people said was if that that's a really cool idea, but if that idea held any water, somebody else would have already done it because it seems really intuitive. And, and that's an argument that doesn't really resonate with me. I mean, it's an interesting argument, but you know, you dive in and you explore the data and it turns out phenotypic screens are really good for first-in-class molecules. Many first-in-class molecules are discovered with phenotypic screens. The challenge is that building a, a strong phenotypic screen takes a lot of work. And so I think maybe one of the fundamental improvements that we made, and, and a lot of credit to Ann Carpenter is I think really uh, the thought leader of this now, most large pharma companies have whole divisions or, or groups doing the work that we're doing. Uh, and she really paved the way for all of that work is thinking about images of human cells like you would think about gene expression, proteomics or metabolomics, where there's a set of things you can measure across any disease or across any biological context. And what that allows you to do is to aggregate data over time and to create one large data set. And so instead of building a different phenotypic screen for every disease one wants to explore, we want to do essentially profile how cell morphology changes across knockouts of every gene in the genome and across, we hoped one day, millions of molecules and thousands of cytokines. And now today, eight and a half years later, Recursion has actually done that. We've knocked out every gene in the genome and measured using computer vision how the cell morphology changes. And it turns out that it's extraordinarily specific. And I think the field of pathology was kind of a hint to this, right? For a hundred years, we've been looking through a microscope diagnosing disease, but it turns out if you use computer vision, you can identify with extraordinary robustness, really, really sensitive and specific fingerprints of biology. And it's, it's sort of this idea that in biology, structure suits function. And if you look at diverse structure, uh, uh, that it will accommodate the function of the cell. And so images of cells become for us basically this holistic readout of cellular state. And so that was, that was the moment we decided we at least had to go try and see if there was a hypothesis that we could test that images could be powerful broadly across drug discovery. Now, this was about when, 2013? That's right. Yeah, we started the company in, in the fall of 2013. Now, some things um, that you're saying, I think, became more clear to the outside world later, like the ability to knock out genes systematically one by one. I mean, CRISPR made that much easier. And that was really just an inkling in 2013. Wasn't there yet. It, it took a few couple of years. Then, you know, the computing power um, that you know, scaled up and then machine learning. The, and that was like the, the um, identifying of patterns in images was one of those early use cases That's right. where people said, okay, AI has, may have some usefulness in interrogating images, pathology images. Yep. Yeah, that's right. All, all of these areas were relatively sort of nascent at that time. I mean, we used SIRNA uh, for the first several years at, at, at Recursion, and, and that's, a messy, uh, that's a messy tool. Uh, you know, we did hundreds of thousands of siRNA experiments, and we knocked we knocked down every gene with multiple different siRNAs, and we would use computational methods to figure out if we could extract the gene specific signal as opposed to the you know off target seed sequence effects that cause so much of the the effect of, of siRNAs. Um, and so there were a lot of challenges in those early days, and and our path was a bit different. We didn't have the network or the experience or the pedigree, right? To go out and raise a huge A brand. It wasn't like I'd ever built a company. 
Well, right. Let's come back to this. How, how did you get this thing started? Where did you get the financing? So the three founders, myself, Dean, uh, and, and a colleague of mine from undergrad named Blake Borgeson, who's a computational biologist, we all put in a little bit of money. Mine was a, uh, I was a grad student. Mine was a cash advance on my credit card. <laughs> um, you know, Blake had already built one company and, you know, Dean was an established professor. So we, between the three of us, we put $130,000 in to start the company. And the very first thing we did was sat down and wrote a direct to phase two small business innovative research grant to the NIH. It went to NCATS. Chris Austin was the leader of NCATS at the time. Um, and we ended up on the very first try coming back with an almost perfect score uh, on that on that uh, uh, grant submission. And we essentially said, we're gonna test the hypothesis that you can use very basic machine learning to look at images of human cells in culture to discover medicines across not one disease at a time, but many diseases at a time. And we set the really audacious goal at the time of looking at a hundred different loss of function, if I recall, a hundred or 200 different loss of function genetic diseases over the three or four years of, of that grant. And ultimately, when we got the, the the letter back and the really good score, that enabled us to go raise a little bit of angel funding. But for three years, we raised maybe a total of three and a half, four million dollars, four and a half million dollars from a set of kind of, you know, angels and a couple of other investors. But we didn't really raise substantial funds until the fall of 2016 when we when we raised our Series A. And those first three years, that was about testing the hypothesis. Like, this was a crazy idea at the time. People like Ann Carpenter believed who'd done this work, but even her work was like not nearly as popular as it is now. And we believed it was possible that this could be a really interesting way to discover medicines, but we wanted to ask a lot of questions and prove to ourselves that the power was really there. And through those first few years, when we were super lean, seven or eight people, I was doing a lot of the pipetting uh, myself, uh, you know, we 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 answered a lot of questions and we became pretty convinced that there was the potential for this to be uh, a disruptive uh, technology. Did you suffer from moments of doubt? Uh, Absolutely. I, I think I think I mean, as we now as I'm learning about clinical development and taking drugs to the clinic and the responsibility that comes with doing experiments in, in humans, um, Working with agencies like the FDA and the EMA, and and the you know the deep responsibility that comes with that and, and accountability, um, everything. I don't think if, if a founder doesn't have doubt, then that's a problem. <laughs> well, were, were you naive about some of that stuff in those early days? And maybe yeah. was that it? Was that an asset? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a lot. Of, yes, I, I was naive. I still am naive. I think all of us are around different things in in life. Um, maybe my bucket of naivete was was bigger. Uh, but that was useful because there were people who came back um, who still said, like, if this was something that anyone could do, it would have been done already. And a couple of grad students from Utah aren't going to be the ones to do it. That That is a lot less common today. But we got a lot of that in the early days. And, you know, I think one of the great assets that my teachers, my parents, mentors like Dean and others gave me and us, the, the founding team was listen to people's doubts, explore them, but then, you know, explore first principles around why they might be wrong and why you might be right. And if ultimately you logically and rationally believe there's something still worth pursuing, you know, don't let it hold you back. But yeah, there's been a lot of challenging times. Were there a couple of moments that you can think of in, you know, those early years where you got a big break or, or you got a key piece of data that, that 
bolstered your confidence and and took you up to another level? So I would say the biggest the biggest delta for us was we tried CRISPR. Um, I can't remember 2015, 2016, something like that. Kind of really early days, and we it didn't work better than siRNA in our hands at the time. There was still a lot of noisiness, and I think looking back, it was probably that we used kind of a constitutive. Uh, constitutively expressed Cas9 that was probably doing a lot of cuts. Um, a couple of years later, we some people in the, on the team said, we're going to try it again and we're going to do it differently. And when we looked at that data um, from the first, whatever it was, 10, 100 genes that they looked at with a kind of a new take on, on CRISPR, that was game-changing because we went from being able to use our approach to understand the relationships for about 10% of genes in a cell type to being able to understand the relationships for around 50 or 60% of genes in a, in a cell type. And those we couldn't explore tended to be genes that weren't expressed. And so it became like this, all of a sudden this moment, this like this vision of building maps of biology across the whole genome went from, you know, banging our heads against the wall with siRNA to this clear vision and potential with CRISPR. And we actually changed the whole, the whole company changed to essentially say no more siRNA only CRISPR within about two weeks after that data came out. We said, moving forward, it's only CRISPR. It's going to be hard. There will probably be setbacks. We'll probably make mistakes. But this is so much better than siRNA now that we've gotten over a few of these humps. We have to, to make the change now. And that was probably the biggest moment, I would say, kind of looking back scientifically uh, at recursion. Now, Around that time, or maybe a little later, I think, we started to see some, some inklings of computational chemistry, uh, people using com, you know, high-power computers to design you know, different kinds of small molecules that, that could fit, that could line up with that structural biology, the target that, that yeah. you're intending. How, um, how, how did that fit into your vision? So I think there's, you know, there's folks like Schrodinger who've been doing some of this work for for even longer than that with physics-based tools and, and and a lot of credit there. I think these these companies really paved the way on the computational chemistry side. What what has happened in the last few years, obviously, is things like AlphaFold. Some of the companies applying machine learning, deep learning to these problems have made really big advances. What's interesting is that we are not a structural biology company, so we're trying to understand biological function. So Oftentimes, um, we will use our maps, navigate our maps of biology to find a, a potential new target. Uh, and we've built digital chemistry tools, but they tend to be focused on the ligand and not the, the, the target itself. We, we use Schrodinger software. We use other pieces of software. If we have a specific target, we're certain that's the right target. Um, we certainly can use the great tools that other, others have built. But we are not a kind of ligand uh, target binding uh, computational company. We're a company that tries to understand un unexpected relationships across biology and, and chemistry. And I think the way I think about this is you can pull two levers. Like you can pull a lever of chemistry, given a target, can I make the best drug? And I think that there's some really great companies like that out there. There's another lever that fewer people have pulled, which is, um, building the best drug isn't generally the number one limitation. It's picking the right target. And so what we asked is, can we build a map of biology that helps us understand what the right target might be in kind of a systems biology context? And we actually think that's that's a pretty, um, that's the zero to one lever to pull. And now that we've pulled that lever, 
we have more programs than we know what to do with. And one of the ways we can make it more efficient to move quickly now is to use some of these great tools that companies like Schrodinger have built. When we find a new and exciting target, can we then drug that better, faster, cheaper? Biology lives in 3D, yet most research in pathology is still practiced on 2D slides. Alpenglow sheds new light on drug development with AI-powered 3D spatial biology. In 3D, we can better understand tissue structures like nerves and vessels, complex cellular distributions in the tumor microenvironment, or detect rare cells and drug targets. It's time for us to start looking at the world in 3D and accelerate drug development with AI-powered 3D insights. See what you've been missing by partnering with Alpenglow at alpenglowbiosciences.com. And did you know Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. So there's the computational chemistry piece, like the molecules themselves are obviously like really important and, and yep. becoming more so uh, at your stage of development. But I want to back up just a little here on the evolution of the company again. Uh, you know, artificial intelligence, AI, there was a moment <laughs> for, for that uh, feel. And this is actually before AlphaFold. I think this was before the pandemic, like 2018, 2019, there was this boom in, in investor interest. Uh, you, you remember this well, cause like now all of a sudden you're not just a couple crazy, you know, graduate students from Utah. Like the, we, you got like we had foresight. We look like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, ahead of the you, curve. you've got some wind in your sails now. Yeah, what, right. what happened, uh, in that period of time? You know, like any kind of new innovation, there's early adopters and thanks to Blake, uh, my co-founder, we were early adopters of a variety of kind of deep learning and, and, and neural network tools. Uh, and, you know, we were doing some of that work back when it was standard in Silicon Valley, looking at images um, for, I would say, much less exciting use cases. Um, there's the famous like hot dog, not hot dog app in one of the kind of quirky shows about Silicon Valley. Uh, and we didn't want to use computer vision to identify things like that in images. We wanted to use it to, to find drugs. And it, it's, it seemed really obvious to us that that was the right way to go. But you're right, like nobody else in the space, very few other companies. There's a handful, Atomwise, a few others that were kind of up and running using machine learning and real neural networks at that time. When that started catching on, when these two worlds started converging, people looked at the companies that had been doing this for a couple of years. And, and like we said, all of a sudden, we kind of got that wind in our sails because people believed, uh, I think rightly so, that we had seen something before others and we were further down the path than, than really anyone else. Um, of course, the reality of it is we had seen that, but there's also a lot of luck involved. There's a lot of serendipity involved. We could have started this a couple of years earlier and it wouldn't have worked. 
And we could have started this a couple of years later uh, and we would have been one of many uh, that was that was building in the space. So you were able to raise a bunch of money. Uh, what, uh, how did that change the company? Yeah. So our, you know, our series a back in 2016 was, was modest, uh, you know, $15 million. But then when we raised our series B 60 and then our series C 120, and then our series D, which was 230, that started really allowing us to grow fast. Um, and, you know, I always knew that leading and managing would be something I would have to learn, you know, coming right out of grad school and every week, I was leading and managing more people than I ever had in my life. Uh, and so it was challenging, right? They're going through these, uh, you know, there's these, uh, these times when you create enough people in a company where maybe 30 people, you don't know everything that's going on. It, like communication becomes a barrier. And this is a very, very challenging time for a new manager, a new leader. Uh, and I think that happened again as we got to 150, 200 people. Then the managers who were who were you know reporting to me were each running groups that felt like they were having these same issues. And ultimately, I think what we really tried to do was be uh, students, right? Have a growth mindset, recognize that there's a lot we didn't know. And one of the best things that that I think we did was hire some really experienced people. Um, kind of my wing person, Tina Larson, who's our president and chief operating officer had been at Genentech for 20 years um, and knew a lot about scaling, right? She joined Genentech when it was a couple thousand people and watched it scale over time. And so she became like a mentor and teacher to me on a lot of the things that I had never done before. And I think in many ways, I became a mentor and teacher to her on having like big vision and not being afraid of what everybody says and pushing really hard uh, against the limits um, uh, uh, and being ambitious. And so it was a great partnership. And there were many other stories like that across the company of, you know, our, our VP of chemistry with, you know, almost 30 years of experience mentoring our new up and coming VP of biology. And, you know, she learned so much from him about not only how to lead, but how to lead with heart and how to lead with empathy. And so just by repeating those learnings across the company, um, by far the hardest challenge wasn't the science when we started raising money. It was keeping up with the scaling of the business and taking care of our people and making sure they could communicate and feel heard. Well, the money, uh, of course, is nice. It enables you to pursue a, a big vision and also recruit people so that they have mm -hmm. some confidence that, you know, uh, if I come move to my family to Utah, we're not going to go belly up in the next six months. Yeah. Uh, that, that's all good. Um, but there was also, at least now from the outside perspective where I sit, there was this boomlet of AI for drug discovery companies coming out. And a lot of them were, <laughs> they kind of had this Silicon Valley kind of aura around them of like, you know, we've got this magic black box and we can't really tell you what's in that magic black box, but you know, it's going to be great kind yeah. of thing. And, and, you know, and, and now uh, on one hand, this benefits you that there's a lot of excitement and new entrants into the field. But on the other, you know, you there's a right way and a wrong way to do drug discovery. So how did you, I mean, you were never just like that simple as saying, hey, we've got a meme here. It's AI for drug discovery. And trust me, mm -hmm. you had something that was more soup to nuts, more systematic. I think your phrase now is, you know, an industrial revolution of drug discovery. Mm -hmm. What, what, is contained in that phrase. What do you mean by that? I, I think as, as others have shared, machine learning and artificial intelligence are tools. They're extraordinarily powerful tools, but they're tools. 
And, um, you know, nobody's super excited about a big black box that we can't understand. And so we try to treat ML and AI as tools uh, of other, and there are many tools in our arsenal that we're deploying to try and discover and, and develop medicines. And I think, you know, it's really helpful to have the set of co-founders we did. We had Dean, who's a physician scientist, who at the time now by 2018, 2019, he's at Merck as a vice president, kind of on his way to succeed Roger Perlmutter to run, to run Merck Research Labs. We'd started bringing in people like Rob Hirschberg on our board, um, who was at Celgene and, and has real drug discovery experience in CHOPS. And so we had all of these people who were telling us, like, here's how you sound when you talk to people in the pharma industry and to the biotech industry. And here's what you're not appreciating. Here's how you're naive, Chris. And on the other side, we had some incredible technologists, folks like Zava and Dar, who was our, our Series A lead investor at Lux, who taught machine learning and really understood that space. And what we created was a real mixing pot of beliefs, perspectives, and the encouragement of debate, where we could all get around the table, disagree with each other, kind of pound it out, and at the end of the day, learn from each other. And I think we've created a bit of a new kind of culture and language here. And, and I believe, and I think even some folks from the companies that have partnered with us or visited with us believe that that new kind of, 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 of company where a data scientist and a chemist or a software engineer and a biologist kind of have an equal footing um, is, is one of our biggest differentiators. And we've done it well. And it's, you know, we're 35% software engineers, data scientists, and 40% biologists, chemists, drug developers. It still to this day is pretty balanced when it comes to the, the, the scale of both sides of what we've built. You know, coming back to that point about AI and ML being a tool, um, it's a tool, but it's 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 only as good at you know finding patterns or analyzing data as the data that you put in. That's right. right. So, like, if you look at just public databases that were generated for some other purpose and then sick AI on it, you know, you're not really going to get much in the way of insight coming out of that. So, like, you you and and others in the industry too. Now, I think of some of the more mature. AI drug discovery companies uh, recognize this. So you have your own wet lab, you generate your own data and it's purpose gathered, purpose built right. to be analyzed by your algorithms. Can you talk about like how you think about that? Yeah, I mean, ultimately a lot of the success of technology companies and in other industries have been built off the back of creating some virtuous cycle of learning and iteration. And so let's take, I mean, you can, you can pick your favorite example, but let's, let's pick Netflix. They've been in the news a lot lately, right? Understanding human, human kind of um, preference for like media is really hard. It turns out you can take the best actors in the world and put them all in the same movie and it's a huge flop sometimes. And you can take no-name actors that nobody's ever heard of, put them in a movie and it's the world's, you know, brand new uh, uh, success, very, very challenging space. And what they did at Netflix was they started measuring how long different people watch different types of content, when they turned it off, when they turned it on. And then they actually got to the point where they started making their own media and they could measure how long people watched it and when they turned it off, when they turned it on. And you can actually create this virtuous cycle of basically you digitize a bunch of things, in this case, people's preferences for, for different types of media, you can use algorithms to turn that into predictions about what would be a good thing to try next. And we wanted to take this very well-trodden playbook from virtually every disruptive tech company over the last 20 years and apply it to our space. And what that meant is you have to build a wet lab. And that's both daunting and exciting because Building a wet lab where we today do up to 2.2 million experiments every week, it's capital intensive, 
It requires us to create this culture where biologists and data scientists are valued equally. Um, and so there's a ton of work that goes into it. Kind of the, 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 the moats for entry here are, are high. But the output is that we've created this loop where we can do a bunch of experiments, we can get a bunch of data, analyze them, and we can then make predictions about what experiment would be best to try next. And it basically cuts the time it takes for us to explore really complex biology exponentially. And frankly, I don't think you could even do this with the public data sets, as you said. Some of these data sets were collected at 15 different sites by a bunch of different people. Anybody who's been in the lab knows that you know, you read a colleague's paper and there's always something missing. You've got to call and like, wait, is this the kind of media you use? Like all the instructions are not there to replicate these things. And so we just decided we have to do it ourselves. Um, and it's been hard. It's way more expensive and complex, but I think it is exponentially more powerful. And frankly, the only companies that I think will be successful in this space are the ones that either via them, their own company or partnerships are able to both kind of create proprietary data sets and run the algorithms on them. That's the secret sauce. It's not one or the other, it's both together. So you've got your data set now. Uh, it lives on your own servers there um, at the company. I think you said recently you got 13 petabytes. That's right, it's a your huge own data set. Now, how, how much is that for people who don't know? Yeah, so the analogy I like to give is if you took every feature length film in human history in every language, in 1080p, that would be roughly three or four petabytes. So we're talking three or four times basically every movie ever ever made in high definition, which is a huge, anybody that's ever downloaded a movie knows, like that's a lot of data. Uh, it's billions of images. And this is growing every week, as you say. Every week. Well, we take a week off in the summer and a week off in the winter for the whole company. It doesn't grow those weeks. Okay. But um, now you also have your own library of compounds that you're making, you're constantly making tweaks to on the computer to simulate how they might um, interact with, with the given target. Yeah, that both the computer and we have a great uh, medicinal chemistry team who makes uh, more traditional uh, guesses and, and, and projections about what compounds we might want to synthesize. But what's great is when we get those compounds physically in hand, we then can run them immediately through the, this wet lab and you create again, this virtuous cycle of learning and iteration. So we now have well over a million compounds um, in, in house. Um, some of those belong to our partners, but an ever growing set actually belong to us. And this library is being enriched by the process we're taking with, with machine learning. So coming to a couple other pivot points here. I mean, you, you found your first, Big partnerships. I think 2020, 2021, first came Bayer, then Roche Genentech. Um, can you talk a little bit about like how, what the Bayer partnership, uh, what it does mm -hmm. and, um, and what it meant to your development of the company? Yeah. I mean, it's always amazing when um, others in the field are willing to take kind of a progressive step out on that limb with you and say, Regardless of what others think, we believe. And you know, you know, uh, Phil Larson at at, at Bayer um, was that that person for us, and and he saw the potential of what we're building. His team saw it. As we got to know their team, we essentially, you know, honed in on this space of fibrosis, where there's a lot of challenging. Um, there's a lot of challenge in understanding what targets to go after in fibrosis, and we demonstrated to them with some early pilot data 
that we could at least find interesting targets that were a little bit unexpected and not the, we could also rediscover the well-trodden targets that, that people knew about. And so they, they got excited about that. And we embarked on a, you know, half decade collaboration to try and go after 12 different novel uh, projects across a variety of diseases and fibrosis. Um, and it's been just an extraordinary uh, partnership. I mean, really, really, really collaborative, fantastic thought partners uh, at Bayer um, who really are excited to leverage what we've built. And it's great learning for our team to have these really experienced folks on kind of the chemistry side and thinking ahead to the clinic and these other things kind of helping to shape these, these programs. So it's been great so far. Is there something inherent about fibrosis, you know, scarring at the tissue and cellular level that that makes it a good place for, you know, the imaging that you're using and, and the algorithms that can analyze those images? Um, I, I don't know that it's an especially good place, but it was a place where we were confident that we could uh, we could make a lot of gains. And, and it turns out that these images of biology or of, of human cells, they, they play across almost any biological function that you care about. Um, so fibrosis is one where you see this fibrosis is one where I think people intuitively believe it's more likely because you know what a fibrocyte looks like compared to a fibroblast. But, you know, a lot of our work with Bayer is on different kinds of cells or co-cultures or other kinds of things. I can't share the details, but, you know, it's not the kind of thing that a scientist looks through the microscope and says, I recognize that as, as fibrosis. Some of the power of what we're doing is extracting phenotypes from things that you or I couldn't recognize when we look through the, the microscope. And we were able to prove that to them, that we could see those things with computer vision. It's just frankly better than humans uh, by orders of magnitude in looking at, at images of, of human cells and extracting true real patterns from those data. Uh-huh. And you're seeing this same thing hold true across neuroscience, which is the main area of your Roche Genentech. Well, so that's an interesting question. Um, uh, so we believe that will be true. Neuroscience is a place where the cell types, you know, we've worked across dozens of cell types, but more than any other place we've looked, and this is probably not surprising to people, um, neuroscience is a place where cell type specificity seems to be extra important. So for example, when we're working in oncology or fibrosis, we can look at a map of human endothelial cells that we've built, and it gives us many of the answers that we might care about. And of course, we can go build you know, cancer-specific models, and we can build you know, fibrosis-specific models with different cell types. But there's a really large overlap in the Venn diagram of kind of these cell types in many areas of biology giving you the same answer. Neuroscience seems to be completely held out as almost entire, like you almost certainly need very specific cell types for neuroscience where you don't for many other areas. And so this collaboration with Roche, they saw what would built in the rest of biology. And they essentially said, you've built maps to navigate biology. That's game changing. Can we build maps in this in neuroscience, which would be game changing? But that's a tall order because now we're talking about neural specific cell types, um, which, as any scientist knows, is you know one of the harder set of cells to to work with. So we're early there, but we're pretty excited, and I think we and they are both confident that there's a lot of potential to build and navigate these maps there. What's the time frame for that partnership? Is did I see? Is it a ten year partnership? Ten year partnership. There's also a single oncology indication. Um, that that we can't share the the details of it, but I think it's it's a it's something we can deliver on much more quickly. 
Um, but I think, you know, credit to our colleagues at Roche and Genentech for having this long-term vision to put in place a pretty extensive partnership to go build and navigate many maps. You know, you can look in the AK, many maps across uh, uh, neuroscience uh, and then to go after many diseases in that space. And of course, as everybody knows, neuroscience is, is, is littered with failures. And so it takes, I think, that kind of vision, whether we're successful or not, it's going to take that kind of vision from someone to be successful at scale in that space. And we're hoping that with our partners there, we can, we can make an impact. Now, in between these two deals, I know you did this little thing called an IPO. That was, I think, about a year ago, uh, raised $500 million. So obviously that, you know, gives you more runway, more ability to hire people. I think you doubled the size of the company. What are some of the operational changes that that uh, enabled you to make? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you, you mentioned several. We were able to hire in some really deep expertise uh, on, on some of the areas where we're going to have to build, for example, like working with and uh, building out neural cell types at scale. You know, if somebody wants to do a whole genome array CRISPR knockout screen in neural cell types, you need some pretty sophisticated folks. Uh, and we were able to build that. Uh, we now are working with not only our own chemical library, but we have the library from Bayer and we'll have a library from our colleagues at Roche Genentech. So kind of scaling up uh, the, the even things as simple as um, like our, our small molecule handling capabilities and our robotics capabilities to do even more experiments. There's kind of build all across the company. Um, and, and now we're delivering on kind of a, a variety of things. We've got four uh, programs that are at the clinical stage, a fifth one on its way to the clinic in our internal pipeline, plus these two really big partnerships. Plus, we don't want to forget about this platform that we built to give us unique insights around sort of efficacy signals and target discovery. But that's just the start. We need to add chemistry and other tools on top of that to continue you know, evolving our capabilities. You've got those five programs. Those are all wholly owned. Those are yours, not subject to the partnerships. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then we've got yeah. several dozen programs coming behind that at earlier stages that are wholly owned as well. Okay. But now at the time of the IPO, I mean, you were still more of a, correct me if I'm wrong, a, a preclinical company, a technology platform. It, I mean, you did have your own homegrown programs. That's true. But I mean, you're a pretty small development organization, right? Yeah. I mean, at the time of the IPO, we probably had 10, 12 people on the development team. We'd run a phase one in our, our cerebral cavernous malformation program, and we were gearing up for, for phase two or phase two, three trials for a variety of our, our programs. That development team has, you know, 4X now into, I think, nearly 40 people and, and, and continues to grow. Uh, and, and this is part of a pretty important, you know, for us to really demonstrate the power of the approach we've built, we have to speak in the currency of our industry. And at the end of the day, the currency of our industry is not yet algorithms or anything like that. It's assets in the clinic that make a difference in people. And that's good. But, but if we really believe, we have to be willing to take these steps. And so this has become a much more complex organization where it's not just software engineers, data scientists, biologists, and chemists. We've now got drug developers and we've got folks who are thinking about the commercial aspects of our programs. And you know there, there is a lot more complexity, but I'm excited because one of our great, uh, uh, I think one of the things we do well at Recursion is bringing people with really diverse perspectives to, this, to the same table pushing them to debate and hash things out, and then getting to some kind of common beliefs that we can all agree on and, and then drive forward. And that's what we're doing today. 
One other thing I noticed, and I think this is in your letter to the shareholders, you made a switch in your operating model yeah. from function first to project first or goal first mentality. Um, describe how you made that change, what that change is, and why did you do it? Yeah, so if you went back two years uh, at the very beginning of our buyer project, we would have our software engineers and data scientists reporting into their function. So reporting up through data science or software engineering. Uh, and then they might get kind of loaned out to like the buyer team to go work on a project. And that, that worked pretty well. But at the end of the day, if people feel like their manager is the person that they're accountable to for delivery, and that manager is not deeply involved in the actual project they're working on, it can be challenging to make sure people are spending their time in the right place and they're prioritizing appropriately. And so we changed our model. And it's it's actually, I think somebody wrote this up. I can't remember if it's McKinsey or BCG or one of these groups. It's, it's in like Harvard Business Review, I think, and it's called the Helix Structure, where you essentially give people, you know, it's a matrix structure where people still report into um, capabilities managers so a software engineer still has somebody they report to in the software engineering org who helps them with career development and make sure they feel integrated with that org. But they take their account of their kind of deliverables and accountability from a manager associated with the project they're working on. So in this case, there's somebody who's leading our work with buyer who may not be a software engineer who's saying, hey, software engineering team that's working on this project, you're accountable to me for your deliverables to the company. And you can work with your software engineering partners for your career development. And it requires a lot more communication. It's like anything, entropy, entropy tries to, to pull things into you know, disarray. But I think as we're getting good at this as an organization, it's really powerful because we now have these durable focused teams who are spending the vast majority of their effort, 80% plus, on one project at a time. And they're sitting side by side, literally in our offices. The software engineers don't sit together. The software engineers on each project sit next to the biologists, the chemists, the dr drug developers, et cetera. So your tech people, your biotech people, they really do have to work together. They have to speak each other's same language. They have to have some kind of shared culture, shared goals. That's right. Uh, it, it can't just be, you know, I'm doing my thing over here in the corner and making the code beautiful. Or, That's right. Or, 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 or I could come up with some example too from the molecular biologists, like running the killer experiment. Well, so what if you can't explain it to the tech person who's supposed to analyze it? That's right. That's right. And so it's a, it's a lot of work to make this operating model uh, 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 operate smoothly, but we've pushed that work through the organization over the past 18 months. And I'm really excited about what we're seeing from a productivity perspective. And frankly, from an engagement perspective, people feel like they understand why they're doing the thing, which they understood when we were small. And I think sometimes, you know, some of the software engineers didn't really understand why fibrosis mattered at a certain point. Now that they're on the buyer team or they're working on neuroscience with the Roche team, or they're working on our, our internal portfolio, they are so close to the project that they get why their code matters. Right. And the biologist gets why their code matters too. And so that's really, really important. It's been a great transition. Now, Chris, we only have a few minutes left, but I want to ask you about operating in Salt Lake City because I know you're passionate about Utah. You're still, that's your home base. Uh, although you do have a few other uh, offices that you have opened up. Why uh, do what you do in Salt Lake City? And, and what are the kind of the pros and cons of operating there? You know, I'll go back to to what you know Kirk and Mario talked about uh, uh, in in the early days. Um, 
there I think is some benefit and I'm sure some cost to being outside of a little, you know, traditional hubs. Um, you are a little bit more free to go about your business without uh, the constant kind of interaction. Now that has costs, right? I can't walk outside today and run into as many people as I might, uh, you know, if I were in Cambridge or something like that, but the space is growing, right? Denali is, is building, uh, uh, an office here. There's a number of other therapeutics companies that have raised real significant funding that are growing here now. So we're getting that critical mass of, of folks on the bio side and the tech industry here is, is, pretty well grown already. And so, you know, what I like to think, I think about recruiting as a good example. We spend way more time and spend way more money recruiting than any company in the Bay or Boston. You have but to import, spend, import people. We yeah. We, especially more senior talent. It's not here, but we spend way less time and way less money retaining that talent than I think many other companies in those locations do. And that's the call I get from a lot of companies in the Bay uh, that are wanting to move out to Salt Lake or, or Boulder, Denver, other places where these sort of these emerging hubs is they they want to come and 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 be able to really focus and have their teams be durable. And I think one benefit of being in a place like this is if somebody opts in, if they're going to move from Cambridge or San Francisco here to Salt Lake, even if they like the outdoors and they like everything we have to offer here, they're committing to going on this journey with you. There's an activation energy that's required. And we find that those people tend to stay committed through the hard times, maybe more than they would if we were in one of these other locales. So you think this fits with a long-term company building strategy? That's, That's right. what you're doing is hard. It's going to take five, 10 years, whatever, especially to mature when you get to the second, third, fourth product. You don't need, you don't really want people who will come in and work for two years and then, you know, leave for another job. Yeah. I, I think it's better for us if people stay longer, especially great contributors. And there's nothing wrong with people who come and stay for two years. And we've had some great employees who've done that. Some of them have gone on to actually start their own company. Some of them in Salt Lake. I couldn't be more proud to lose an employee than to losing them to starting their own company. Okay. So, you, but you have opened up a couple other facilities, Toronto, Montreal, the Bay Area. Why did you do that? So we, we acquired a company um, in, in California that had an office in, in Milpitas. And so uh, it's a vivarium. Uh, and so we think, you know, that's a pretty rare thing to find. And to run our own vivarium, we wanted to make sure we had that great team there and that they could durably focus. And so we kept that site. We chose to open new offices in Toronto and Montreal because we like up and coming cities. We like cities that we feel like are on the early stage of growth where we can come in and actually help create the culture and create the direction for the community there. Um, and Toronto and Montreal, from a tech perspective, for our software engineers, our data scientists, are two of the most enriched places in the world for that kind of talent that are on this upswing. Uh, and there's also, you know, benefits for us in terms of recruiting international talent into Canada. It's much easier for us to bring folks in from around the world in Canada than it is, uh, unfortunately, here here in the U.S. to join our team. So lots more reasons, but those are the high level ones, Luke. These are long term strategic moves. I keep it seems like a through line with the way you think about building this company. And do you, do you get grief from this from from shareholders uh, who, are, who are more focused on the quarter? Well, I mean, look, uh, there, there's not a right or wrong shareholder perspective. I think what we tried to do and what my shareholder letter is set up to do is to be really clear about how we think, because the goal is to attract shareholders who are aligned with the kind of way that we think. 
if you are a quarterly focused shareholder, um, you know, it depends what quarter you invest. It might be good or bad. I think if you're somebody who believes in what the world could look like in five, 10 years being very different than it is today, we're a kind of company that shares that belief. And whether we'll be successful or not, nobody knows. But at least you know that we're a company that's making decisions based on trying to optimize for the 10-year outcome, not the 10-month outcome. Uh, and so there's a set of investors and shareholders that think that way. And you can go look at the 13F holdings and look at our top holders, and it'll give you a map to some of the best. I saw just a few weeks ago, you even issued an ESG report, which I know some investors do care about uh, and prioritize on. And, and it's pretty ambitious. Like net, You're talking about net zero carbon emissions for your company by 2030, 50-50 male-female distribution across your whole company and the VP level and above by then. Um, th th these are um, tangible goals that, that um, uh, you know, not every company makes, especially at this kind of early stage. Um, what how has that worked out for you so far? I mean, I know it's early, but yeah. Well, look again. We're trying to attract the kind of people that are betting on the the long run, right? And um, I would be willing to bet right now that the environment uh, that we live in today will make it rec almost required for any company to be making these kinds of commitments within the next three or four years. And we will all of a sudden look like. We did with AI back in 2013 to 2016 as a company that was on the forefront and ahead of, of many others. That's what we try to do is, is make predictions that are reasonable based on first principles understandings and based on what we think is right and our belief and our employees' belief. And this is increasingly true of a lot of companies, and I'm not sure all the management teams understand this. This new generation of employees have very high expectations for what companies are going to contribute beyond shareholder value. And so ultimately, we believe that to be successful in that environment and because it's the right thing to do, we shouldn't get caught up, you know, scrambling to make these commitments with three years left to deliver on them. We know that that's going to be the expectation by 2030. All companies virtually are going to be pushed to make the by the market to make those kinds of decisions. So let's get a head start. Let's be ahead of the curve. And that's what we, we try to do in most of our decisions. It's a fascinating story, Chris. Uh, you've uh, you've got some near-term opportunities with uh, those four assets in clinical development, and then you know a pretty broad pipeline behind it. So uh, I guess we'll find out. Uh, we, we will. How, how right you were. <laughs> yeah. Next thanks, years. Luke. I appreciate it, and thanks for cataloging so many great stories across the industry. Thanks, Chris, for joining me today on the long run. Take care. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.